But I do also ask, what about the future of leaders? Welcome to Surviving Society's collaborative series with the Centre on the Dynamics of Ethnicity, based at the University of Manchester, also known as CODE. In these episodes, we explore the facts and evidence produced through the Centre's lead in research. We ask how changing patterns of inequalities relating to the ways in which ethnic identities are perceived, acted upon and experienced in Britain. Across the series, we focus on policy and debates around ethnic diversity, integration, immigration and inequality. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. I am really excited today to be in the studio with two amazing people. First up, we have Suda Buchar, who is a Tanzanian-born British Asian actor, playwright and co-founder of Tamasha Theatre Company. Suda is best known for Child of the Divide, Balti Kings, A Fine Balance, The Trouble with Asian Men and My Name Is, as well as numerous screenplays for television and film. In 2015, after leaving Tamasha Theatre, Buchar founded Buchar Boulevard with the goal of continuing to diversify British theatre by featuring more artists of colour and challenging its audience to more critically and empathetically examine their surrounding communities. The company creates heartfelt, memorable theatre for multiple and diverse audiences by holding up a mirror to our common humanity. Honestly, like I think, Suda, you are probably the most accomplished playwright, artist we've ever had on the show like this is so incredible to have you here and in conversation we also have um Swiving Society alumni Roa Ali who is now a permanent lecturer in arts and cultural management at the University of Manchester. Roa thank, thank you. you so much for joining this conversation but one of the reasons why we've come together in this conversation was because of an initial um performance of your recent one woman show um Suda in conversations and Roa you met Suda via this show and it was you you helped with the Q&A afterwards um, yeah 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 absolutely I mean what 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 a pleasure to, uh, well a to be called uh, a surviving society alumni I, <laughs> I just feel like you know I'm on top of the world and what a, a privilege to be with Suda with in conversation yes. with Suda Again, because um, because I genuinely was um, was amazed when um, we went to, to the uh, one woman show uh, converse, evening conversations, um, and um, I kind of had an idea of what to expect um, having researched uh, Soda before, um, but the show really was breathtaking. I I just I felt throughout the show that vulnerability that was on show the honesty the depth of sharing that humanity it was just wonderful and I had the privilege of um, then sharing the Q&A with Suda which was a highlight so that if you can just tell us about evening conversations and I encourage everybody to come and see it it was an experience Yes, I mean, Evening Conversations is based on my conversations with my sons who, you know, they're millennials and centennials. Uh, The older one's name, Summer, in Arabic means Evening Conversations. And uh, he was born in 97. My younger son was born in 2000. And, you know, as they were growing into late teens and early adulthood, I just felt that our conversations were, A, they were, you know, really brilliant banter, but also the fact that I'm I'm a 
you know, secular Hindu, Indian, married to a Pakistani Muslim. We live in Britain. You know, our lives were so interesting, but you never, you don't realize that, you know, until you're in conversation with your kids. And then I just felt that our conversations were so reflective of um, what Paul Gilroy, I think, calls lived multiculturalism, you know. Um, and I just thought that would just be the great basis for a piece of work, uh, which came up by completely by accident because, uh, do you know Mac in Birmingham? Midlands Mac. Arts yes. Centre. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in late, in November 2018, uh, Piali Rai, who runs uh, Sampad, which is based at Mac, she invited me to just do an evening uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, she wanted a play reading and she had a very small budget. And I said, you know, if you had five actors, you can't afford a play reading, you know. But she said, come, come, do anything. Um, so I just knew that I wanted to do something called Evening Conversation. But in a way, I ended up writing the brochure. You know, it was in the brochure before I knew what I was going to do. Um, so, yeah, it's just started I like a lot of my work because I do a lot from verbatim. I'm really interested in everyday conversations and how extraordinary they are and how when you extract those and you make art out, out of them, they, they really do touch the heart. So I just, yeah, it kind of started from fragments of the stuff that me and my sons were talking about and then it's gradually grown very organically, quite slowly, you know. So I've done it. Every time I've done it, I've added things. And then obviously, you know, COVID happened so somehow it's like a tapestry that I kept weaving and adding and taking away and and I still keep doing that, you know. I feel like one of the things that you have clearly done throughout your career, Suda, is a demonstration of the connection between artistry and scholarship. So even when you're speaking there, it reminds me of a sociologist and I think that that is the beauty of theatre. Like there is... There's nothing like theatre in helping people feel and recognise um, lives, stories, inequalities. And I feel that a sociologist especially, and Roa obviously is an expert in this field, that we should be taking note of how we can communicate our social worlds in a much more artistic way. Collaborations are really, really great between academics and artists. I mean, funnily enough, I mean, I've did, I've done a degree in maths and sociology. Wow, <laughs> you know, come on, that's 40 incredible. 40 years ago, you know. Oh my so God. So I don't see myself as a sort of academic, but yeah. it is wonderful when, when you have the right collaborations, like with, you know, Claire Alexander, who's there in yeah. Manchester University, who can see the value of... Um, a piece of work being in the context of wider discussions. So, for instance, when I did my play Child of the Divide, which was um, inspired by a short story by Bisham Sahani, and it's about a lost Hindu boy during the time of partition, you know, we realized that actually the stories of the narratives of children are missing mm -hmm. from these kind of world events. And it was really great to partner with academics like Professor Sarah Ansari, who then they wrote a foreword to a new publication of my play, you know, contextualizing mm. that story within what actually happened during the partition. So I do find these collaborations, you know, and I'm performing at Manchester University while I was on, you know, a fellowship called the Simon Industrial Fellowship. It, that sort of interface between 
academics, students, artists. You know, it's more important, I think, than than people realize. Mm. My PhD was in theatre, actually, because I really had strong faith in theatre and what it does. And, you know, that that live interaction between audience and performer, storyteller and, and audience, I, I think it's transformative. The British theatre theme made me rethink what the power of theatre can be, uh, especially when it's so classed and so race in Britain. What you are just uh, discussing with Chantel, I think it's really powerful. And, it, you know, it goes to something you 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 said about the the play being a lived multiculturalism uh, Gilroy's words and and that was so true i mean in the in the play you discuss the struggles you you had responding to the critique of multiculturalism you know multiculturalism as a performance itself or policies of multiculturalism as as performance as we acknowledge difference but we don't necessarily embrace difference as long as we don't see it every day and we don't have to interact with it every day then that's kind of fine and that's kind of the multiculturalism we lived in i mean i think for me like i i start with the dialogue you know with the wonderful rhythms of how my sons talk and so I play them as well so there's a sort of delight in someone my age you know playing my sons in conversation with me but they're always challenging me provoking me you know it's funny their dialect is different to mine so in a way I'm more interested in in that encounter and then all the layers of the framework around it comes afterwards, you know, and off, and it is from the audience or from people like you who who will see that. Whereas if I set out to do it in that the opposite way, then you end up with quite dry dialogue that you you know you have to look at the performability of things first. So so for instance, when I'm doing the partition, you know, I'm not doing. Nehru and Gandhi and Jinnah's speech, you know, I'm looking at the children and what they went through and how that will talk to children today. But then the academic like Sarah Ansari will mm. be able to sort of frame what that what you're seeing, you know, in a wider context, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and I, absolutely. And I think that's the beauty of art, of creativity, performance is because ultimately, you know, what these kind of, you know, multiculturalism as a policy, kind of racism and 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 class discrimination um, and gender discrimination and all kinds of discriminations, what they are, um, even though they are these big words, what, what they are and the impact of them is felt by, by the humans, by the children, by through their stories and through their life journeys. And I think that's what you bring us. I'm really interested in kind of the, the process. We did a, a piece of research research at Manchester on the impact of COVID on ethnically diverse creative and cultural workers and the findings of the survey and, and that piece of research was they were very impacted and that was mostly because they are at front of uh, of house staff they are at the lower ends of of the uh, pay scale and seniority which meant that they were easily dispensable you know our communities were disproportionately affected in many areas of life you know um, and with me my husband is in quite a vulnerable category because of his health although he wasn't on the official shielding list you know but so we we did have a very lockdown lockdown but in terms of creatively uh, certainly one of the things that really kept me going and this I mean I, I do find the universe 
comes to your aid. Well, I have been lucky, you know. And in that instance, I was doing a project around the theme of touch. Um, and it was, uh, it was commissioned by um, Revoluton Arts in, in Luton and the Welcome Collection. So the Welcome Collection were doing a huge study on the theme of touch, a global study. Uh, and, and alongside the scientific study, they gave out two artist commissions. So I was very lucky that I got oh. that commission, you know, before COVID happened. Amazing. Because it ended up being the study of touch during a time of absence of touch, mm -hmm. you know. So actually that, that work became very much like a tam time capsule of what the communities in Luton went through during, you know, lockdown. So in a way, you know, I was lucky that I had that going on at the same time as I'm a long-term self-employed person. So I was able to avail of the government help. But I'm very, very conscious of, you know, freelancers, you know, and I myself am vulnerable, but there are people, the kind of people that you mentioned, you know, front of house staff, people on zero hour contracts who were much, much more, you know, disproportionately affected by all that. You've been working and producing for a long time now. And I wondered, particularly thinking about Roa's question about COVID, if we could roll back 20 years if you could talk to us a little bit about how you've seen both the sector and industry change or stay the same, particularly when thinking about race and class. I mean, I think what's really fascinating is, um, you know, because I've turned 60 not, not that long ago. I've been here 40 years. You know, I have been in a leadership position and then I'm starting again. Mm. And although Butcher Boulevard, you know, Butcher Boulevard is not a core funded company. No. So um, I am quite vulnerable in that sense of starting again, you know. And I would say uh, what's interesting is all the work that you do. I mean, my generation get called trailblazers, pioneers, you know, how younger people are reaping the rewards of our struggles like we did of the people mm. who came before us. But I do feel there's always this reinvention. Yeah. And I'm sensing kind of feeling of erasure from the in, it's like there is a institutional amnesia. OK. You know, of what has come before. It's like people are now suddenly very excited Oh, oh, post the kind of Black Lives Matter. Oh, we're going to build back better. You know, we're doing diversity. But I think what with that, what has come is like, oh, we're doing diversity now, you know. Mm. Well, in a way, we've been doing diversity. You know, I've been doing it 40 years. People that came before me, you know. So I don't feel we're building on what's happened. We're starting as if, oh, we're doing it. This is how we do it now, you know. Uh, and I definitely feel, and I was reading in the stage um, just two, three weeks ago, um, Amanda Parker had written about how there is yet another failure of when, when, a, when a person of color is in quite a senior leadership position, mm -hmm. it's like the institutions aren't there to let them fly, you know. So on their shoulders sits quite a lot. And then you often find resignations and you don't know quite why. But it's a pattern, you know. Yeah. So I think what we haven't done is like really harness the lived experience of leaders. So then when you see them and then you go, oh, I want to be there, you know, whereas people are sort of going, oh, I want to do it my way and it's better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it comes from a lack of knowledge of what has been there. 
that's so that's in- my sort of so, personal so, experience of it. That's yeah. so interesting yeah. hearing that from the kind of like theatre, like the the theatre perspective, and um, based on your lived experience as well, Suda. Because I feel like we sometimes have a kind of similar a similar situation um, when it comes to kind of anti-racist practice, both within institutions and in community organising. Um, I don't want to speak for an entire movement, but that there's that kind of, there can be an intergenerational disconnect. And I feel like on the flip side, kind of what you're saying, um, there's, we sometimes have conversations on this show where we feel like where materially speaking there's been so much pressure generationally on people that 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 kind of passing down of information and wisdom hasn't always been able to come to fruition and that's not it's not a personal um jab at anyone at all it it kind of maps onto what we spoke about before on the show about how the intensification of neoliberalism and thinking about kind of the 80s to now and how much that has really like like disseminated so many of our communities and means that kind of learning from each other has not been able to kind of fully reach. You put it quite well, you know, an intergenerational disconnect, which is caused by an inadvertent scarcity mentality. Yes, yes, that's on, it. On a sort of yes. collective scale. Yes, yes, And yes. so therefore, and you, you can't blame, like younger yeah. artists of colour, they are carving out careers. You know, it's like my kids and it's in the show. You know, mm. we talk about, you know, they'll say to me, oh, not everything in life is about diversity, mum. You know, you've got brown people on Bridgerton. Yeah. And then you go, yeah, OK, we've got brown people on Bridgerton. You know, so does that mean that it's changed for, you know, everyone? No. The producers of Brit- Bridgerton, yeah, yeah, for example. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic that yeah, we yeah. have. But what happens is then that those successes are used as a look, we're doing diversity and look mm. how where we are. But we, as a movement, aren't, you know. We, and on the other hand, you've got a, yet another report by Diamond Diversity saying, you know, South Asians are the largest um, ethnic group in this country, but we are the most underrepresented. Mm. So how do you square that with brown people on Bridgerton? Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you raised is so powerful. So we, we have two issues. We have the inter intergenerational kind of uh, gap knowledge or lack of communication but but also and I think what is uh, essential in here is that institutional erasure and how things have shifted both in terms of policy and in terms of institutional practices so you know I, I've looked at the um, shift in diversity practice and policy and discourse Um, and it was I think from arguments around the politics of recognition and justice to what it is now kind of commercial imperatives to capture uh, market niches right Mm. Um, represented by different groups so what I feel now and where I feel the shift is and that's why the work is really important the work of anti-racism anti-racist activists is so important because I feel that the shift has been from that that now it's diversity rather than anti-racism that is being sought that is uh, uh that is being kind of covoted um and that's to, to to widen markets for both private and public sector institutions and essentially what i also feel that what's happening here is we're doing this through the commodification of race 
and the commodification of difference. Mm. And what commodification of race uh, here, or what I'm referring to, is this process um, in which race and racial differences are turned into commodities. And Bridgerton is, you know, a, a brilliant example. You know, we are a commodity. Within Bridgerton uh, representations, we don't carry the, the the history. We don't carry um, the, the the colonial history that has happened. Sometimes we are taken out of context, and we are turned, you know, people of color are turned into those commodities, products I mean, that you can do be have bought. To, um, you know, I do applaud that as well because obviously something like Bridgerton will be seen, you know, and as a piece of art and as people having jobs mm. where they have big. You know, one of the girls, I don't know her name, but you've seen her in an advert with George Clooney. And, you know, and you think advert. it's great that our people are having that those opportunities, but they shouldn't be the only thing, you know, that happens because a lot is happening at the grassroots level still, which isn't shifting, you know, to where it needs to. Absolutely. You know, so, yeah. uh, but the, and this is, though, when we are focusing on diversity, rather than anti-racism, uh, rather than anti-discrimination. You know, diversity then comes as this shiny product, and we have seen it in politics. Mm. Our politics today is a prime example of mm. how this focus on diversity as an image, rather than as anti-racist efforts, that's that's not anti-racism, and we are not going to get equality that way. Yeah, not 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 sort of structural change where there's leveling up and you know all of that. I agree with that, and I do think it's all very. I mean, that's why for me, doing work like evening conversations is where I, in a way, I give myself agency. <laughs> I bring my full self into the room. It's begun really gently. I've tried it out in various, you know, in a way I do feel like this is my offering. You know, um, people are talking about creative aging, you know, because on the in the industry, where are people like me mm-hmm. on the screen? You know, the, it's very rare appearances. I think it is how do you um, keep creating in a way that is complex and nuanced and funny and, you know, it invites people into the conversation. I applaud you for all of this and I don't I, I genuinely don't know how um, frustrating it is or how much uh, persistence and determination it takes to kind of keep doing work when the environment around you is not as supportive. So I want to talk about the journey of evening conversations. You know, what does it mean to produce the play? What does it mean to have it staged in different places, you know, nationally and hopefully internationally? I know you, you've been to French Festival and I wanted to, to know how your experience was. Did you feel what we have been talking about manifesting in one way or another in terms of the support you were getting? So in terms of the journey of evening conversations, uh, because I just set out what I gave myself permission, it's the first time I've done something just on my own, as in a solo performance that I've written, I'm mm-hmm. performing. I mean, I don't even, I wouldn't call it a play. And I talk about that, don't I? In the show, I sort of say it's not a comedy, it's not stand up. You know, in a way, what is it? Uh, you know, it's a sort of unraveling of conversations, uh, 
meditation on my squeeze middle life as a multicultural mother of millennial sons, you know. So in terms of its journey, what I've loved about it is that it's been very organic. So one thing has led to the next. You know, I haven't put pressure on myself that it has to do this, this, this. So it's been a lovely unraveling. Um, you know, I've done it in places like a community center in Luton, the Wow Festival, literature festivals like Bradford, Leeds, Wimbledon Book Fest. Mm. And then last year, I had a two-week run at the Soho Theater. And actually, it was Soho Theater who invited me to go to the Fringe as part of their, I think they had about, 12 or 15 shows and there was a slot I mean I only did the final week so I didn't do the full month and they invited me which actually made it possible for me and cushioned it because they paid for my you know travel and my stay there otherwise I couldn't go, I wouldn't go to the fringe mm. you know I've always talked about the fringe as a lion's den you know like if you go there unsupported yes on one level, it's the world's biggest festival and what a great opportunity. But actually, underneath that is slog, you know. It is absolute slog. But it, it was delightful for me to be part of Soho's offering. It was still very difficult to get audiences, you know, despite for the first time ever I had posters up, you know, of me. People were leafleting, not just myself. I had intimate audiences, but very appreciative audiences. What was lovely is, again... I saw the wide demographic of people it can reach, you know, middle-aged white people who are going, doing the festival, mm -hmm. you know, culturally, people of color, young people. Lenny Henry came, you oh, know, wow. and uh, I mentioned him in the place. So it was lovely that he saw that. There is an inequality there in Edinburgh, you know, which you you know, because you will have the stars the, the well-known people with huge social media followings whose shows just sell out before they open, you know. I was actually invited to be on a show of a character called Gary Tank Commander, who's a sort of Scottish, uh, an actor called Greg, um, who, who's made this character, and it's a really popular character. So he does a talk show, and again, it was sold out before it opened, you know. So I was lucky to be on as a guest there. I, I had a great time, but I also know that, you know, I wish I could have had bigger audiences, definitely, you know. And I was very lucky to be hosted by Soho Theatre. One of the absolute delights for me is to do my performances at Manchester University because, you know, Claire Alexander invited me to apply for the Simon Industrial Fund, which enabled me to make contact with Code, you know, who are, mm, who are your partners in yeah. this, aren't they? And, and actually the context of doing this piece within a university, and I've done it at a drama school as well, Central School of Speech and Drama, because you do get students of colour, global majority students saying, wow, we need this because you're somebody that, you know, we are aspiring to make, a, make our way in this industry and you're showing us that even at your age, you're taking control of your voice because... We know how the struggle, as you said, you know, I, I do show my vulnerability. I'm very honest at the difficulties I'm still facing, you know, making a career in this in this field. It feels like it's piecemeal support. Um, and, you know, that has a big part of why we are still talking about diversity, even with 40 years of work that you have done, that your generation have done. We're still talking about 
diversity. I mean, I think the thing I mentioned before about like, you know, people always worry about leaders from the global majority, the future leaders. But I do also ask, what about the future of leaders? You know, so when I look at my white peers who've had a career of, you know, setting up a company, commissioning work, changing people's lives, that company still exists. You know, it isn't the same journey. I think our journey is very much still off self-producing, self, you know, finding funding. And actually within that, the support from Manchester University and that fellowship is not piecemeal. It is incredible because it's enabled us to meet. It's yeah. enabled conversation. And who knows? You don't know. What I hope is that universities will go, oh, wow, we actually do need to have deep engagement with artists and because yes. that feeds back into your students you know one of the things i think is incredible about your work suda is that yes the inequalities across the sector are clear but your response in your artistry has always been well seems to me like it's always been a place from resistance so creating and building with what you have and i think that kind of authentic practice in artistry means that like things like the collaborations that you spoke about um people being engaged by the the work that you produce organically create something beautiful in themselves even amongst so much yeah inequality like not getting our voices out there in the way that we maybe want to like our different ways of yeah resisting and creating any way is always something i think to shine a light on and celebrate Definitely. I mean, I think absolutely. Um, and actually, in a strange sort of way, by doing something unadorned, um, you know, like I feel like I've gone back to basics. But this show is like something that just keeps on giving to yeah, me as well. Yeah. What I'm really thrilled that it's been resonating with so many different demographics. You know, that doesn't mean I've got hundreds of bookings. But I have actually, my son said to me, Mom, if you don't make a you know, smart goal, you won't achieve things sort of thing. I've always let, you know, things happen. And I've actually said to myself, I want to do it a hundred times. Yeah. So that's a You're smart gonna objective. Manifested. <laughs> I've pure, done 35 Manifested, pure manifestation. Yeah, so I need to, and, and actually out of the blue, Audible saw it, Yeah. you know, at Soho. So then they commissioned it. So it's on Audible. So I don't know how I'm going to get to hundred, but you are I've said it out loud also yeah. the universe as you said is connected to it all the different opportunities that keep coming through and it just yeah. shows like creating in the well I'm going to Manchester University for the second time yeah. you know so that's so nice that they call me back that's yeah. brilliant that's that's fab if yeah. I if, if, if I if I may and and uh, kind of shine the light back uh, uh on on institutions and it's wonderful that you know that you have that resistance and you have that determination to keep going. But but also, um, I want to come to a point of saying, you know, why should all the work be on the shoulders of ethnically diverse Black and Asian um, um, creators and cultural workers? Um, you have done this work over and over again and, and you are here because you continue to do it. I'm not saying that the creative industry... No, is, no, I think you're right. I mean, the thing is, what's the answer? You know, that's mm. the thing. What... And that's why diversity, the progress towards diversity is so is still painfully slow. It's because initiatives taken by organisations and even art funders 
they lack this prolonged investment. They lack the the, the long vision. They, they and they often don't come with wholesale institutional strategy. And what that means is that those diversity schemes are often segregated um, and failing to achieve more structural changes. You asked a really important question. What's the future of those ethnically diverse leaders? You know, well and good to to have to have a, a an ethnically diverse person of color in a leadership position for few years. What is after? And if that doesn't make change, you know, there is something that is seriously wrong. We have made our own journeys and then people do want your lived experience, but they want it in a kind of piecemeal way or come and do a session here or whatever. But your actual practice is as serious as, you know, a a white person who's had a 40-year-old career. You know what I mean? It's like... And then the onus is on you. I mean, one of the studies I found really resonant was Gemma Desai's study, This Work Isn't For Us. I mean, it's this 90-page brilliant study that she did at Central Central School of Speech and Drama. And it's focused on the film industry, but it could be relevant anywhere, you know. And she made me realize that the word resilience can be used against you. Or if you don't pick yourself up, then it's you're not resilient, you know. And actually, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that, that really hit home to me, you know. It's a neoliberal terminology, the, the discourse of, of resilience, because it puts the onerous always on you, always on your shoulders, and, in, and without um, putting the responsibility and the accountability on those institutions that have been there, will always be there, have the resources, and they choose who these resources go to in one, mm. in one way or another. I think the other the other problem with that diversity kind of, or with the way that diversity has been going, is that it's often thought of as a one-way stream, that it benefits the ethnically diverse recipient, between air quotes, rather than the institution, rather than the creative industry. Failing to acknowledge um, a priori value of ethnic diversity and failing to align it explicitly with anti-racism, it it risks, and I have a term for this, and I call it white institutional benevolence. Institutions performing acts of inclusion, but often to maintain their uh, morally good status. But within those acts, you know, there is an implicit ordering of value who is deemed to be, you know, part of this institution, part of the future, the future leader, and and who is here to perform a task. Um, And that task essentially is to prop Mm. that institution itself. Um, these are my two cents, but obviously your experience are kind of it, it. It speaks, I think, to and and in resistance to to what I have just said. Um, and that's I feel like you know there's so much to learn from you and from your experience and um, from all you know the great creatives and and talent that they are doing all of this great work despite all the challenges. No, I think, uh, thank you for that. And it's like, you know, the more we kind of harness what's there and Mm -hmm. build collaborations like this, it's really important. Thank you so, so much for such a nourishing, generative and, yeah, just inspiring conversation. Um, Like you said, Suda, that we really need to kind of recapture that which has come before 
and appreciate it, acknowledge it and help it guide us to the yeah, visions of more equity within across the arts. And Rara, thank you so much for being my co-host today. It's been a privilege, as always. Always happy to come on the show and to just to, to be in conversation with Suda is, yeah. is, as you said, I think it's uh, quite nourishing, uh, soul nourishing. So, so thank you. Thank you so much, listeners. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society, get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.